Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 70, Editing Rulebooks. Recorded at Metatopia 2014. Presented by Joshua Yearsley. started fairly on time. I have a lot of stuff that I would like to talk about. <laughs> um, so uh, this presentation is probably going to go for about 25 minutes to half an hour, and then we'll have a, depending on how much time we'll have, uh, we'll definitely have questions. And then if we have a bunch of extra time, I also have a little workshop that we can do. We can gather around and, and do a little bit of hands-on stuff. So we'll see how far we get. So... Ten things you can do to make your rulebook awesome. So, hi, I'm Joshua Yearsley. That's also me, I suppose. Or is it a picture of me? This is not a pipe. Um, I am a professional editor for games. I uh, started in science editing, actually, so it's kind of a funny transition. But that's my story, in a nutshell. These are a few of the games that I've worked on recently. Um, I've worked for Evil Hat on their Patreon stuff. Uh, I've uh, done board games for Stronghold Games and a number of independent publishers, so just kind of so you get my background here. Before I start, I just want to give a uh, a little bit more on me and how that's going to flavor this presentation. Um, the tips and tricks that I'm going to be giving you apply uh, differently to board game rulebooks and role-playing game rulebooks. They're completely different beasts. Um, so as I am talking, if, if something comes up in your head like, oh, I'm, I, I'm not sure if this applies to me, don't worry, there's plenty of stuff for both types of rule books. So, Ticket to Ride is a game that has sold millions of copies. It is the modern classic, uh, if you want to call it that. And we have to ask ourselves, what sets a game like this uh, above in... Uh, quality above some other board games. What makes it so... Uh, what makes everybody want to play it? And to answer that question, we have to think about what happens when we sit down to, at the gaming table, but even before that. Because some good Samaritan is going to sit down and read that rule book. <laughs> and when they get to the gaming table and start teaching the rules to everybody, uh, every time the play experience goes from we are playing the game right now to uh, we have to reference a rule or there's a rules confusion. That's what the players are going to remember. They're going to remember the rule book. They're not going to remember the game itself. And so the game isn't going to get recommended to friends. It's not going to sell. It's not going to be a good play experience. So I'm going to give you ten ways to make the play experience a play experience and not a rule, an exercise in rule book reading. First, say how you win. This might be kind of an obvious thing to say because 
you know, you need to know how you win. But often, rule books are just going to give you this. You win by getting victory points. You win by being the first to finish. You win by et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is really, really easy to give a good overview of exactly how you're supposed to win. For example, you can be very specific. Ticket to Ride does this right in the beginning of the rulebook. Points can be scored by claiming a route, successfully completing a continuous route, completing the longest continuous path of routes. Important in this, we all understand, because we know what trains are, we know what routes are, we know what paths are. These concepts don't require additional explanation. And because these concepts are available to us already, you can simply say things like, completing the longest continuous path. Like, that makes sense to us. But if we have something more complicated, so like Eclipse is a game about controlling a galactic civilization, maybe we don't know a lot about controlling a galactic civilization. Um, but even a game as complicated and esoteric as Eclipse gives a basic breakdown of the ways in which you can win. So controlling galactic sectors, fighting battles, etc., etc., etc. It gives you those basic, basic building blocks that later you can build on and explain in more detail. So as long as you give that to the players right off the bat, you're already on, you're, you're already on good start. Two, give components some love. Components don't get enough love. Um, whenever we think about any concept out there, we have to think about five things. You have to think about the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how. And, but when we think about a game, we also have to think about how we are interacting with that game. It's not enough just to say, uh, move your character around and hit things. You have to say, use the stick to move your character around. Press A button to, move, to hit the dude on the other side of the screen. And in games, the components are that interface. In chess, it's all of your pieces on the board and the board itself. So we, to explain any game properly, we really have to think about the components. So when we're thinking about game pieces or game components, including the board, the what becomes what it looks like. The where becomes where you use it. When, when you use it, why you use it, the actual reason this component is included in the game. And how you get it, how you lose it, all of those how questions. What it looks like is absolutely essential. The player sits down with your game and you say, Okay, you have four action markers. That's not helpful whatsoever. Give a picture for all of your components. Why you use it is also useful sometimes. If you have an especially complicated game with lots and lots of components, uh, if, if you have a very complicated game, it's going to have a lot of these big, big concepts, most likely. But you can break these big concepts down into smaller things by talking about the components. You're like, Okay, you have these diplomacy markers, which you can use to ally with other players. Something really, really simple. You don't have to go into all the details on how you would do that, when you would do that, etc., etc. But you can give a little, little tiny bit about the component is used for. The other stuff, it really depends. You don't want to overwhelm people early on. Um, but depending on the type of game, you know, you might want to give the where you use it, when you use it, and how you get it. That is all contextual, so you have to think about that for your, for your own game. Three, use concrete language. So abstracts are 
uh, concepts are abstract. Construct, uh, concepts are out there in the cloud. We can talk about consciousness as a, con as a uh, concept. <coughs> Very complicated. But with any concept, we can take that abstract thing and use concrete language to explain it. Concrete language is how we interact with the worlds. Um, we under only understand ideas, we, we often best understand ideas through comparisons. We say something is like something else rather than trying to uh, describe an abstract concept in wholly abstract language. So in the con in, for a game, again, we can return to these pieces. To talk more about this, I'm going to talk a little bit about War of the Ring. War of the Ring is a big, hunkin' uh, board game uh, originally by Fantasy Flight and then republished by Ares Games. The interesting thing about this game is that uh, the rulebook was com essentially completely rewritten from the first edition to the second edition. So if you want a really good example of how a rulebook can go from eh, to much, much better, look at this game. So over the next few points, I'm going to give you some case studies in how the rulebook was improved. So we're talking about concrete language right now. So in this game, War of the Ring, it talks about this abstract concept called regions. So I've put the concept language in green here, and I put the concrete language in blue. So it talks about these things called regions. So it says, the game board has these things called regions. And then it gives a bunch of essentially non-essential info. And then it goes on to say, sea areas are not regions. But that still doesn't tell you anything about what regions are. Then it goes on to say, if the border between two regions is completely divided by a black line, that's impassable terrain. Right there, that black line, that is linking this abstract concept, which is, re which is uh, impassable terrain in this case, and it's saying, look for these black lines. When you see these black lines, that's what we mean when we say impassable terrain. In the second edition, there's way more concrete language. It says regions are normally separated by white line or a river between two white lines. So immediately it just goes, boom, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for white lines. A thick black border denotes impassable terrain. Boom, black border, impassable terrain. And then it talks about seas and lakes. So in the second edition, it immediately introduces the concrete thing that it's linking to these abstract concepts. Regions, white lines, impassable terrain, black lines. Keep related elements close to each other. So there's a principle in design in general called the proximity principle, which is that readers are going to interpret things that are close together as being related, far, far away as unrelated. In the first edition of the rulebook, all of this text that's involved in explaining regions is on a completely different page and across from the graphical representations of, those, of the different types of regions and impassable terrain. But in the second edition, right next to each other, they take, not only do they put the concrete language in, but they bring the graphical examples right next to the place where the reader's going to look at it and be like, oh, okay, this is related thing. I look at that, I read that text, boom, I, am, I understand now. Make what's important obvious. And, the and one of the ways that you can do this is through good style. So in talking about the region, in talking about regions in the first edition, they capitalize regions. But quite often, when you are introducing a term, a better way to set it off from everything else is not to capitalize it, but to bold it. 
many other things are capitalized, you know, first word in a sentence, proper names, names of components uh, are sometimes capitalized. And so you want a more, a, a less common uh, thing to say, okay, look at this. This thing is important. Remember this, uh, remember this word. This is going to be important for you later. It's important because if you're looking at a big hunk of text, like look at all this text, you don't know it's, a, it's hard to tell it's important, and boom, the bold just pops out at you. It's a little hard to see on this projector, but trust me here. <laughs> you have to be sparing with this, though, because if you start going all out and go bolding all over the place, it loses all of its power. So, so be careful with that. Like a textbook where everything's highlighted. Exactly, yes. Um, if you have longer stuff, um, I would suggest using pull-out text. Here's an example from Pandemic. It's talking about drawing cards, it says, after doing stuff, you draw cards. And then right after that, it says, if you're about to draw and you have fewer than two cards in the deck, you lose the game. That's pretty important. So they took this very important concept and just put a little, hey, look at this. So that's pull-out text. So you can use bolding, uh, usually for, for single terms. Pull-out text is a very important tool for longer concepts that you really need to say, look at this thing right here. Then for names of individual components, one thing that I like to do is italicize them. So if I'm talking about a specific one of a specific components, so for example, in competitive play, the starting room tile is the test chamber. So room tile isn't italicized here because it's a whole class of components, essentially. But if I want to denote a specific, like this is the name of this one tile or this one card, uh, you can use italics to, to set that off. So that's another good way of uh, showing like, this is a different thing from like the rest of the stuff that I'm talking about. Uh, talk like a human. I'm sure most all of you have seen the iTunes uh, <laughs> terms of service. Um, and you know we like to call this legalese. But in rule books, um, quite often we, we get kind of the same thing. Um, this is a, an image I pulled off of Daniel Solis's blog. He's a graphic designer who works on games. Um, I, I apologize, I'm going to read a little bit of this just to kind of drive the point home. In all cases, once tourists have been awarded and then placed during the executive phase, all tourist markers remain where they were placed, normally on a building tile, until at least the next tourism phase, and so on and so on and so forth. So this is really kind of a rules-y situation here. We have legalese and we have rules-ease. And so we have to ask, what is the thing tying these two, these two terms together? What are people writing terms of service and people writing complicated rules looking to avoid here? What is, uh, what is driving this kind of behavior? And I think that the answer to that is that they're trying to essentially cover their asses. If you explain something and you're nervous that somebody isn't going to understand you, you're going to write in, okay, well, here's this exception. Here's this other thing you should think about. And that's fine, but if you do that too much, you're just going to confuse your reader. So when you're writing a rulebook, don't write it to cover every edge case and question and quibble and just everything you could possibly ask for. What you, and because it's going to make all that essential information hard to find and hard to understand, you want to give the stuff that is going to be important all the time. That's the stuff that you want to focus on. Don't mussy it up by putting in all of this other stuff. Instead, we want to build a simple foundation to build on. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how to do that. 
So really, we should be talking like a human here. There are three symptoms of rules ease. First one is vague language. In all cases. What cases are we talking about here again? Until at least the next tourism phase. At least, in what cases would it be the next tourism phase, and in which cases would it be after that? It doesn't tell us immediately, so we're just confused. If the tourist's situation... Situation? What does that mean? So vague language is, is something that uh, needs to be stomped out. Excessive signposting. What signposting is, is telling the reader where they are in the text and trying to tell them exactly where they are. Once tourists have been awarded and then placed during the executive phase, why not just use the order that you give the rules in to denote that? If, it, if you just awarded and placed tourists during the executive phase, then why not just rip all of that out? I'm not saying that you should never put thens or things like that in, but you don't necessarily need to explain it in so much detail that the actual rules get covered up. And then there's over-explaining. So, the markers remain where they were placed. Normally on a building tile, why right now do we need to know that it's normally on a building tile? It raises the question when you read that, well, what are the other cases? You know, if you don't give the readers what they need, they're just going to be confused. Uh, and then later on, you have a statement that has IE. That is, I'm going to re-explain what I just explained before. If you need to explain something twice, then there's probably something wrong with the way that you've written the rules. Um, the tourist markers will remain in the same city and on the same building tile. Does that mean they don't remain in some other way? Again, it's all of these questions that come up as a result of this over-specificity. Like, why do we need to know it remains in the same city and on the same building tile if not to then say, but it doesn't remain in some other way? So there are many cases where you believe that you might be clarifying things when actually you are impeding learning. And once you put all of this stuff together, the actual rules are kind of buried. There's like nothing, there's like barely anything there. Um, so... Um, so yeah, so there, it's, it's, it's a problem. Um, that's going to be what the workshop is about later. So depending on our time and people are going places and whatever, we might get into more fine-grained details on all that business, but that's for later. Seven, be consistent. Be painfully consistent. And what I mean here is in your terminology. So if we read some, like a novel or something, and we read a passage like this, we would be pretty annoyed because uh, it's using smiling over and over again. Why doesn't, why doesn't the author use uh, different words? You know, vary the word choice up. But these are rule books. It's not fiction. When we have lots and lots of, we have lots and lots of words in the English language. We have lots of synonyms for things. You know, you can say that something is triggered or enacted. You can say something is resolved or played. There are temptations to vary up the word choice to keep the reader engaged. But here's the problem. When you're teaching something, so let's say we're teaching about resolving an event card. All right, so resolving an event card. 
you are going to draw the event card, you are going to look at it, you are going to read the text at the top, you are going to do the things that it says, and then you are going to discard it. So that sequence of events, that information, when you first teach it, is going to be embedded in your idea of that word in that context. So whenever you see resolve event card again, all that information is going to go right back, right back to you. You're going to go, okay, look at the card, da, 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 discard. So all that gets wrapped up in the meaning of that word. And again, this is taking abstract to concrete. So you're taking the abstract concept of resolve event card and you're translating it into do all of these things. So it's a natural, a natural progression for the human mind. So when you say it again, resolve, boom, resolve, boom. And then if you suddenly say trigger event card, yeah, you, know, you might eventually get it. You might say, oh, okay, like that makes sense. He's just saying resolve again. But that's going to delay your reader. Every single time you're not consistent, it's going to be little paper cuts, little paper cuts. You're going to delay a second here, a second there, and those add up. And there's no, and when you're using specific terminology to refer to specific events, there's no reason not to be consistent. So don't make them think and repeat yourself when you are using terminology that is, that is in your game. I'm not saying, like, if you ever use a specific word, only use that word. But if it's a key term to your game or if it's key to understanding how your game works, you should be consistent with it. And the best thing for this is a style guide. And props to any of you who went to the Style Guides or Your Friend uh, panel earlier. Style guides will give you the groundwork for making sure that everything is consistent. Um, if you don't know what a style guide, guide is, just come talk to me or um, uh, talk to John Adamus or Amanda um, Valentine. They will tell you all about them. Um, just like with verbs, resolving, blah, 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 it's important and probably even more important to keep your, your noun terms consistent. If you say action token a bunch of times and say action marker, uh, it's going to be confusing. Uh, if when you're talking about uh, opportunities for players to do things and choice, make sure that you're, using can, that you're using can consistently or you're using may consistently. Language is weird. We uh, have kind of lost some of the distinction between can and may recently. But when you choose to use one, keep it consistent. Because if you use can a whole lot and then you suddenly throw in some maze in the same context, your, play, your readers are going to be like, oh, well, author said can over here, but may over here. What exactly does that mean? So again, it introduces these implicit kind of questions into the text. Go big and then go small. Some of you may have heard of the tale of the blind men and the elephant. A bunch of blind men walk up to this elephant and they start feeling around the elephant and one of them says, oh, this thing that we're touching is like a snake. And the, another one says, it's huge and flat. And another one says, it's like a tree trunk. And all of this is wrong because none of them have the, the whole picture of the elephant. And rule books are much the same way. You absolutely need to give a full sketch of the way that the game works before talking about specifics. A very good example of this is uh, board game Endeavor. Don't worry about reading the text. It's not a big deal. Basically, what Endeavor does is first it gives you a very, very general overview on how the whole of the game works. It says, it lasts seven rounds. There are four phases. 
during the four phases, you get to do these things. Then it gives a very general description of the four phases. And only after giving you all of that does it actually start talking about the line-by-line, line, do this, do this, do this, do this, of each of the individual phases. So it does a very good job at giving you the elephant before talking about its tail. And when you're doing this, um, be careful with references. References are great. References are useful. Um, when you're talking about a broad concept, uh, and especially in RPGs, when more details on that concept are like 100 pages into the book, references are essential. But when you're uh, putting references into your rule books, the main problem that can happen is assuming that the person understands those details off in that other section of the book to understand the next concept that you talk about. I'm not saying that people do this on purpose, but when you're writing something, you know all of the details already. They're all in your brain. And so when you put a reference in, it can be a cue, almost, like an unconscious cue that, like, oh, I gave this reference, and that has the, the details that they need. And you may unconsciously assume that they understand everything to go on to concept B. So we want to eliminate the need for understanding all of those details. And the best way to do this is that as you're writing, try to write it without references first. Try to, as hard as you can to write without references. And then after you have finished the text to the best of your ability, then you can go back in and put in the references. But trying to do it without the references set, puts you in the frame of mind like, all I have here is what I have right immediately in front of me on the page. Nine, silo that info. So, I talked before about some ways that we can use style to point out what's important in our rules. But what if we don't want to use style? What if we want to use some other method to say, hey, this is related to this, or this is important? Well, the good thing is, is that English has a great tool for that, and it's called the paragraph. The paragraph is the fundamental silo of an idea. If you have lots of related info, the natural thing is, is to pull it together into a single paragraph. It can be related by chronology. You know, you're going to be putting, putting things in chronological order. And you can cut those paragraphs off at reasonable breaking points between one thing happening and another thing happening. It can be about the subject. If you have something about a particular thing you're doing, and then, all of the, and then you start talking about something else, you can put in paragraph breaks to separate those subjects out and give a cue that, okay, we're talking about a different idea now. It's like if you have a silo full of wheat, if you tried to throw in a whole bunch of corn in there as well and like walked in there, it would be hard to pick out like, okay, we need to collect a whole bunch of wheat, but there's all of this other stuff in here. How do I parse this silo of information now that you're trying to talk about multiple things at once? If you want to denote important information with, uh, while avoiding style, you can keep the, the order the same, but you can set off the information in, in smaller chunks. When you have something in a smaller chunk, there is less mental overhead from having read all of this other text in this paragraph. It's just right there in front of you, and you don't have to worry about the rule getting buried because it's on a in a completely new paragraph now. And 
don't listen to anyone who says like paragraphs have to be multiple sentences. No. Just if you have something really important, you can just stick it in a sentence of its own. And then finally, use all of your tools. So when we're thinking about rule books, we want to be able to put a lot of stuff in the rule books. Depending on uh, the kind of game that we're making, you know, we're definitely going to put in the mechanics of play. You might want to put in strategy. You might want to put in frequently asked questions. You might want to put in tips and reference material. Um, but the problem is, is that if you throw all of this stuff into the body of the text, the reader is going to get overwhelmed. As I mentioned before, all of these extra explanations can really bog down the fundamental experience of, I want to learn how to play this game. I don't want to learn about all of this other stuff right now. So you might be tempted to say, I need to put this information somewhere. And the good news is, is that you can. These concerns are super legitimate. You just have to use your tools right. And the tools that you have in your rulebook, you have your body, you have your sidebars, you have your examples, and you have your reference materials in the back of the book. The first thing to know about these is that these are have different importance on the first play. Your body is going to be, these are the things that you absolutely need to know to play this game. And then sidebars are going to be you know, optional stuff or tips and tricks and things. And then examples are going to be clarifying things. So you, know, you play and you're like, oh, I'm not sure how exactly this works. The examples are really, really good at clarifying those kinds of things. And then your reference text in the back can solve all of those weird edge cases where it's like, well, I have this card, and, but this thing is happening. So, um, and so the references in the back can, can really help with that kind of stuff. And it's important to know that they are all very, very different beasts. Not only are they different in importance, but they are used for completely different functions. So I'm going to go back to Endeavor again and give an example from that. And what I'm showing here is what I would normally consider excessive signposting in the body text and what I would ex consider over-explaining in the body text. But in this context, in the example, it's useful information. So it says, Africa is an open region thanks to Black's move in the previous example. So there's a lot of this extra information in here. It's not really talking about what is happening. It's talking about states and things like that. And some information like this would be useless in the body text, but it's helpful in the example. Or for the over-explaining. Oh, uh, Purple did this one thing, but he could have occupied that other city if he wanted to. Again, it's more information than you might need in the body text, but it's perfectly acceptable in the example. So use the tools differently. Use the tools for what they're intended for. Another example from Endeavor, a sidebar. It starts off, you may find it useful to. It's talking about if you have all of these tokens, you're like, oh, I have like 20 of this token now. That's really inconvenient. It says, why don't you just use these handy number tracks on your play area? It's a play tip. It's absolutely non-essential to learning how to play, but it's just a handy little deal. So it's bad for the body text, but it's great for something like a sidebar. And then bonus, get an editor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here are all of my picture references. Thank you, Creative Commons and Flickr. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, any questions for now? Here's my website, Twitter... Uh, I also have business cards if any of you need that. So, and I will be putting this online on my blog there. So if you didn't get everything this time, I'll put all the slides up with some notes. So yeah, any questions? Can we get you a business card? Of course. Yeah, we'll, 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 I'll, I'll give all of that out after. But um, yeah, so. What software do
do you recommend for, or what is there a particular software package that you think has all the tools for writing a good rulebook? Use Word, LibreOffice, or just as simple as possible, honestly. Um, Notepad. Yeah, honestly, (laughs) Notepad. Like you don't when you're writing a rulebook. I find it easiest if you use um, just like tags for your like different headings and sidebars and things like that. So if you have like a sidebar, you could do like uh, bracket sidebar, and then you give everything in the sidebar, and at the end you do slash bracket sidebar. So you just give kind of a, a scripty markup to things. I find that that's usually easiest for me to parse. It may be different for you, but usually when a rulebook goes to an editor, they're just going to want plain text. They're not going to have to. They're not going to want to deal with like style, like style put into the text they're editing and stuff like that. That's it's just an extra thing to, to worry about. So if you give your intent using tags and things like that and just like a plain text editor, then that's fine. You can use Word, that's fine too. Um, but I don't think you need anything. If you're just talking about text, I don't think you need anything complicated. So, any other questions? Yeah? What about the, 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 the um, overuse of underuse of illustrations? Overuse or underuse of illustrations. Well, like some books that don't have any break in the text because yeah, and then the ones that are all illustrations, just a little bit of text here and here. Yeah, I mean illustrations are great for breaking up text. Um, there, if if you want to think about graphic design stuff, talk to that guy right there, Joshua yeah. A. C. Newman, um, for great ways to get around using illustrations. Um, you definitely want to avoid the wall of text problems. Uh, often uh, you can you can do that smartly by appropriately using callout boxes to break things up and sidebars and elements that look different from each other, not just all body text. So that's one way to kind of get around the problem of you know if you don't have enough illustrations. But I mean, uh, if you don't have enough illustrations, you can break up things also by using examples. Um, you know, just take your your source images, and you can throw that together and do an example to break things up. So, questions? Yes. What about uh, a game where that may be more complicated? Sure. But has has uh, established kind of a mini version play mm-hmm. that doesn't need all the rules. Right. Where 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 do you put that? Where do I put that in what? Oh, so you're saying in the rule book? Yeah, how, or, do you, how do you... Well, if that's the case, then you honestly probably want that in a different book. Like, if it's if it's a... Comp- if So so how long are we talking here? We're saying, like, so an RPG? I'm, I'm, and, thinking, I'm thinking that uh, if someone who's unfamiliar with the game, right. yeah. you want to pl- them to play a particular... Um, oh, smaller, okay, yeah. Mini, mini modules. Like a limited quick start rule set mm-hmm. versus a... Not, not just a quick start sets, scenario, do you mean? A quick start a, game. A, a game that you, mm-hmm. you want them to play the game okay. with less pieces or less elements or whatever, so okay. they get the feel of the play. Where do you do, do you do that as a, a an alternative way to play, or do you because re- you really want to mm-hmm. start that way? Right. Yeah. I mean, in that case, the the first thing you have to think about is, uh, like I said, whether or not you're going to do one book or two books. If you're going to do two books, if you have lots of like different scenario, is your game like a scenario based game, or are you just thinking about? I don't have a particular game. Okay. Okay. Um, if if I can comment on this, sure. From the viewpoint of somebody who has taught or is learning a game, 
I would much rather see two rule books. This one's the thin one, mm. and one thicker rule book that has two games in it, because I'm going to get lost. As somebody, if you're trying to do something that's simple, keep the book smaller and thinner so it looks less intimidating. There's less chance of getting lost. There's less chance of me accidentally skipping forward and going, oh my god, what's that? I read the small book, I play the game, and then when I'm ready, I pick up the next book. Which is advanced. Which is advanced. Right, yeah. If, if it's not too problematic in terms of capital costs for making the rule books, I mean, def- definitely, if you, if you have a, enough to justify it, go for a separate book. There are lots of games. Space Alert is one that comes to mind where they have a, here's an introductory thing with some like fun stuff to go along with it to make things easy for you. And then they have the, the, the full rule book. The thing that you have to be very, very careful about that, though, because sometimes um, information... You can, you can think that you have put information in the rule book when in reality you only put it in the how to learn for your first time book. I've seen this happen in some games, and it's just a nightmare if you're trying to reference things afterward. So that would be my, my first recommendation without more details, but that would be one thing to be really careful about is that, that information problem. So I, I was introduced to two tabletop games yesterday mm-hmm. upstairs, both of which never showed me all the pieces mm-hmm. or all the things. They actually had a game to play, mm-hmm. which used, which used right. less, and that's the way they felt it was important to teach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the stuff that I talked about, about putting all of the love into the components, that's something that's great for a rule book. That's not, um, I think you were in John Adamus's panel, or he talked uh, the Why Do You Hate Your Readers? Or no, Okay. Um, well, uh, one thing one thing that that he talked about was a let's play model versus a uh, rulebook or reference model, and something like what you're describing is great for a let's play situation. You know, if you're at a con, certainly you don't want to go into depth with everything and say like this is this component, this is this component. People want to get into playing immediately, but for a, a rulebook that serves as a reference at some point, um, things are different. So you should think about what the function of a particular text is and then base everything off of that that decision. So, so you're kind of saying two books, what you were saying? Yes, that would be my first. Without any other details, that would be my first recommendation. Yep. Any other questions? Okay, great. Uh, let's see how much time we have here. Oh, we have 20 minutes. Um, Trying to think about how best to do this. Um, so I have a little workshop stuff. Um, so at any point in time, if you can't see what's going on, just shout, and we can like squish in and do something. But we'll give us a shot. We'll see how, the, how how this works. So we have all this text, right? We have over-explaining, we have vague language, and we have excessive signposting right here. And as I said, this is bogging down our rules. So. First thing is identify everything that you can just cut out wholesale and not reduce the actual mechanical things that you are doing in the text. So all of this, in all cases, once all of this has happened, that's going to go away. Normally on a building tile, that's going to go away. Until at least that confusion, that's going to go away. Verified at the beginning of this phase, that's going to go away. And then finally remain in the same city and on the same building tile, that's going to go away. So all of those things, the reason that I've taken these out 
is because they do not actually give you any information about what is going on right now, right at this moment. So just blam, remove all of that. So now we're left with these two things. We're left with the tourist situation, really vague, and we're left with this IE statement. So by reading in a little bit on this, basically all this IE statement is saying is exactly the tourist situation. So if the tourist situation, well, what is that? The same player that surrendered their tourist marker last turn will once again surrender it. So that is the tourist situation. So pop, we just pop that text right into where the tourist situation was. So any vague language that you find where elsewhere in that bit of text there's the actual explanation, just pop it right into the vague spot. So remains unchanged from the previous turn. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Um, remains unchanged from the previous turn. That is essentially just leftover text from here. It is saying the tourist situation remains unchanged from the previous turn. The IE, the same player that surrendered their tourist marker last turn, will once again surrender it. It's essentially just saying remains unchanged. So all of that can just get removed as well. So then we just cram all of that together. Um, we, uh, I changed around a few, uh, a few words here. Um, specifically, uh, it's this next one, yes. So first I'm looking at all tourist markers remain where they were placed until the next tourist, tourism phase. So I look at that and basically what I do is I talk about what's happening right in the present moment. So before I cut out a lot of stuff because it's not describing what's happening in the present moment, now I'm rephrasing stuff in terms of the present moment. So before it says, they remain. Now I'm saying, this is an action that, you, uh, that is not going to happen. It's saying, tourist markers placed this turn cannot be removed. Uh, and the second part, the tourist markers will remain, um, uh, basically just uh, stays where it is. Uh, next. If the same player that surrendered their tourist marker last turn will once again surrender it, the tourist markers will remain. So this is kind of a really, really ratty way of going about talking about this idea. So if, if we say, if the same player, we're immediately setting up this question of like, okay, the same player is what? And then we give a whole bunch of information describing the same player. We can just say if a player surrendered his, and you can use her. I personally, what I do is uh, use singular pronouns, but between chapters alternate them. The singular is very useful in rules because it avoids confusion. Um, if you're talking about a specific player and you suddenly start using they, it can be a little bit jarring. So that's what I've done here. Um, and then the second part, the tourist markers will remain, well, that's just plain vague, right? The tourist markers, whose tourist markers? His. So if a player surrenders his tourist, surrendered his tourist marker last turn, and he would surrender it again this turn, so I've broken this up into a separate idea, his tourist markers will remain. And then these two ideas are separate, so you just pop those apart. Um, the first one is just a very basic statement, and then the second one is uh, another condition. So this isn't perfect. I might do some other things with it if I had more time, but that's kind of the gist of 
one of the editing processes that I go through when I'm looking at a rule book. So, any questions on that? And if not, then we are done. Yes? I do have a question. Sure. It's related to one of the things that you said in there. Sure, I will just... third person. Um, oh, yes, the pronouns? Yeah. Yes, so okay. One of the things that I've been doing recently, mm -hmm. trying to get to the point of conversational tone, sure. um, is using second person. Yes. Instead of yes. use the player, right? Or whatever. That that is that is. I, I definitely agree that second person is great. Okay. There, when you are talking about, so second person is great when say you have like an action phase, and the players are all going in turn, and one player is doing one thing. When you're talking about like one of the things they can do, sure, second person is great. If you're talking about something broader where you're looking at the state of the board and multiple players could fulfill the same condition, you really kind of have to use the third person in many cases. Second person is amazing, and I would also recommend often using the imperative. So where, um, where you'd say, do this, place this, that is all in second person. Um, I don't know if actually, yeah, there's none of, none of that in here. But when you use the imperative, you're throwing the action right there at the beginning. Yes? I, I just note that part of the struggle that you're having here sure. is the extraordinary devotion that this author has to the passive voice. Yes. And, and it's like, oh, I'm doing all this <laughs> dancing around yeah, and and to make sure that you don't know who does what. Right. <laughs> and, and that is kind of another, um, uh, another symptom of this drive to, this, this kind of unconscious drive to cover your own ass. Um, legalese does it and rulesies can do it. Uh, pat, uh, rule books can read like academic texts. Academic texts are notorious for overusing passive voice. So yes, where appropriate, active voice is great, but passive voice is also important. If you want to make sure that the doer is what you're focusing on, then use active voice. If you want to focus on what is being done to the object, then use uh, passive voice. So it really just depends on what you want the lens to focus in on. Any other questions? I'm sorry, did I fully answer your question? Yes. Okay, great. Yes? Um, you talk about paragraphs and then not necessarily need to be in the like, four to five sentences like your sure. told you and it's okay to break them apart. Yes. But is it okay to use bullet notes in between? Bullet notes... It's fine to do that. I usually veer away from using bullet notes. The the times where bullet notes are useful, um, I would not recommend using bullet notes to talk about like do this and then do this and then do this. Um, I would use bullet notes if uh, I'm just talking about a list of things, for yeah, example. Yeah, yes. like if you're talking about paragraph and then you go like yeah. Detail, yeah. Like the right. Yeah, you can use it. You can use it for lists. That's fine. But yeah, avoid avoid bullet points at all costs if you're trying to use it to explain rules. Yes. Why? Um, because it essentially breaks the it it breaks the so you have all of this body text and it's not bullet pointed and if you suddenly uh, break into bullet points <coughs> to describe rules, you're creating another hierarchy that's tacked on to the headings and subheadings that you already have. And if you use bullet points, it's like, well, are these like individual ideas? Or are these connected to each other? And that kind of tension can cause problems with understanding what the bullet points are supposed to represent. Again, it's kind of this implicit thing that you introduce 
by putting the bullet points. You're not saying anything expressly, but just by changing the style, essentially, you are setting it off in some way. And so unless you have a good reason to set it off, like, for example, a list, which is different from rules text, then bullet points can harm learning. So, so yes. is for, for lists, is that a list of individual items or individual concepts as well would be covered under that? Or would that um, be paragraph time? Well, con, well, concepts is a, that's a very broad word. I, the the um, specific example I'm thinking of, I have a list of, uh, a list of things that grant points okay. uh, for certain actions. If there's a lot of stuff, you may want to use bullet points. Mm -hmm. If there's only a few, you might not want to. Okay. Um, if you have a lot, a lot of things in a list in the body text, it can be like, uh, If you're talking about just very, very vague, like general stuff, like in the beginning I gave the eclipse example, mm -hmm. like that's fine. But if you're giving, but like I, I'm actually just going to go back to that. Uh, so many slides, so many slides, so many slides. We like slides, they're good. Uh, okay, it was right here. Like, they use bullet points, mm -hmm. because, like, these are pretty complicated concepts, and it's easier to, like, read them as separate things. Now, I, I personally wouldn't use these semicolons, but that's just a personal style choice. Um, but the bullet points distinguish them a little bit better than trying to cram claiming around blah 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 semicolon successfully completing blah 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 so if it's complicated like that sure but if you're just giving kind of general stuff then unless it's like crazy long then you probably don't need to use bullet points okay. so. any other questions alright well thank you so much thank you. Thank you.